0: Welcome to Building with Rust, a podcast where we talk to people building cool things in the Rust programming language. And today on this inaugural episode, uh, I'm joined by Luca Palmieri. Luca, how are you doing today?
1: Not too bad, not too bad. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure to get this started.
0: I have to tell the story here now for how this whole idea even got started. You posted on Twitter... I guess about a week ago now, uh, specifically requesting a podcast like this. And uh, I, I took you up on it and I just hit you up in a DM and was like, hey, how would you like to be the first guest? So I guess that, that was it.
1: I think this is a podcast that needs to exist. And I'm super glad that somebody picked it up.
0: Tell me a little bit about kind of what are the, the main Rust projects you're kind of spending your time on currently that will kind of highlight over the course of today's show. Okay,
1: so on the open source side, more or less in the open, I've been working on 0 to Production, which is a book on backend development in Rust, although that doesn't necessarily qualify as a Rust project, but sinking a lot of hours in there. On the more like professional side, so actual projects running with Rust, um, I've been building our pay direct product at TrueLayer. So it's a payment payment method based on open banking and uh, faster payments rails in the UK, which is built top to bottom with Rust.
0: Let's start with TrueLayer. Yeah, like how did that get started on a Rust stack? Was that like what was the story there?
1: Uh, it's a longish story. I think we can go back probably a year and a half, almost two years ago. Um, like of course you don't just get started on a massive Rust project uh, from like one day to the next. So layer is like, let's give a little bit of context. Um today a FinTech startup, most of our stack um, is is.NET core, so C sharp for us. Like the greatest majority of the backend services, with a few exceptions, which used to be in Python because of machine learning usage. And I arrived to work at Trulalia as a machine learning engineer, Um, so I was doing something slightly different to what I'm doing now. And as a machine learning engineer, you do Python. Uh, like That's your work course, day in, day out. Uh, Those are the libraries you are. And and Python is very nice, but uh, to really go fast with Python, you need to write native modules. Like, that's the way you actually get the extra kick of performance out of Python. Uh, I can't write C. Like, just not capable. of that little bit of C++ at the uni. Um, it's, a, it's a funny memory. Like, I got this C++ course. And for the exam, you had to submit a project. And my project, even though, like, I spent probably three days, uh, like, trying to debug it. And so, after three days, I said, well, actually, I don't give a shit. Well, I'm going to go with, to the professor with this folding project, and we're going to chat through it together, and he's going to help me fix it. <laughs> I go to the professor and say, OK, well, this is what I have. Like, I think it makes sense. I don't understand why it's segfolding. It's, we spend like half an hour together, and he asks me, Oh, you built it? Like, what have you done here and here? But we can't debug it. So after 30 minutes, I go away, max grades, project still um, So. I, I, I couldn't trust myself to write it module, either in C or in C++. And I discovered Rust shortly before joining through the year, so, like, three years ago. I was doing it for, like, numerical stuff. So I started to write small scripts in Rust. Like, when I needed to do a little bit of heavy handling, like, with a lot of data, our log parsing pipeline used to be a map MapReduce job written in Python, Became up a MapReduce job written in Rust. And in general, like, we started to play around um, with Rust scripts, mostly for, like clis ci some small kubernetes controllers like non-critical things things that were not in the path of customers doing things Um, but it was safer to experiment and like there was less pressure about can we support this language as part of the platform and it was all like building a little bit building the hype like convincing the other engineers that like actually this was an interesting technology that delivered something that we didn't have um, solve some of the problems we had
0: and it actually
1: was not that difficult to learn uh, because of course that was like the biggest myth to demystify is like rust is impossible to learn like, unless you're a system programmer unless it's too complicated it's like no actually it's there's a learning curve like we need to accept there's a learning curve uh, but if i got there uh without being a system programmer i from python you coming from like statically typed languages it's gonna be okay that like, you can do it too it's not impossible and like slowly, we started host meetups and people got interested, they got involved. We arrived at the point was June last year, where actually like the possibility of building a new system in Rust didn't seem so crazy as it would have probably seemed like two years back. And it was also very mission critical system. So it was the first system when we were actually holding funds on the alpha customers. Um, so we had a bank ledger, we had wallets, money in, money out. So it was a like high gains, high risk type of system compared to what we were working on before, which is still critical, but we never saw the money flowing through the system. So that makes sense. In this case, we do. And so like it was a easier sell, as in, well, actually, the type of system here gives us a lot that will help us avoid certain mistakes that would be very, very, very costly if we were doing this in another programming language that we didn't have these features. And I mean in a miraculous uh, ton of events uh, we did it so we started. Um, now I think six months later project is live the announcement went out last week. Um, there's 10, 12 engineers working on it. Um, some had previous rust experience most do not and it's going well. It's going well I and mean, I still have a job that's also a data point)
0: So it sounds like the story here is rewriting the major uh service for true layer in Rust and like getting off of the old stack. And so that was like
1: No, it's not very right. It's not very right. This is a new product line entirely. So we are not in any shape or form like doing a migration from .NET Core. It's like, okay, for this product line, we can do Rust. And and the idea, I mean, that might or might not materialize depending on how things go and adoption and the obstacles in countries. Rust is a viable programming language to choose for a new project alongside .NET. Not yet the case today, but might be the case in the future.
0: What sorts of applications are Rust appropriate in the context of kind of what you are working in? Like, when would you reach for Rust, and what sorts of projects would you say let's build this? either in the old stack or some other more appropriate stack? What do you think?
1: It's a nuanced argument, I would say. Um, and it also depends on how much familiarity with the language you have. But generally speaking, what I would say is whenever you need correctness, and of course, everybody says, yeah, I like my software to be correct. But like, what's the price of an error? Because that's always like the question you got to ask yourself. And if you have complex workflows with a lot of invariants, where making a mistake can cost you some serious money or can seriously compromise your reputation, Uh, for example, uh, data leakage or security uh, issues of different kinds or uh, moving money to the wrong place and then you need to put them up out of your pocket. In those systems, like the Rust-type system Comes out as extremely useful, like being able to write state machines, being able to offload a lot of checks to the compiler at compile time, and not having to write unit tests for certain types of things, or not having to do excessive checks that then might or might not actually uh, be enough. That saves you a lot of time. The other type of system where Rust helps, of course, is performance sensitive systems. Um, So, if you have something where you need it either to be very fast, so that's one category. The other one is you need it to be very predictable, um, which is often an, like, undiscussed aspect of Rust as a programming language. Even if it's not necessarily the fastest implementation, the uh, deterministic collection of memory done by the compiler because the whole like memory reclamation is analyzed at compile time, makes it so that it's very unlikely that you have, for example, spikes in latency uh, because of the GC pose. Like, you know that under a certain load is going to perform in a certain way, and for certain types of workloads, that's very, very, very useful and important. So that's another niche, so to say. Now, of course, there's, like, there's a gray area in the middle, uh, which I call generic backend development, where any language will do. extent. And so, there, like, the biggest factor is what does the team feel comfortable into using? Like, uh, how easy is it for them to get the ball running and how easy they think or how confident they are that they're going to be able to support the system going forward? And that very much depends on the background, the preferences, like different people like different languages for different reasons, usually depending on what they prefer to put emphasis on. So, Rust is one of the stock. Um, so sometimes people say, well, actually, I don't want to think about memory give me a GC. Other people are like, yeah, static typing, very cool. But actually, give me a dynamic language. So that's are that different school of thoughts, so to say.
0: There was certainly a lot of convincing on your part, it sounded like, to convince your coworkers, your fellow engineers, kind of about the virtues of Rust. Was that a hard sell, or did you think it was pretty smooth? Like, did most were most people pretty just receptive to it?
1: How do, how do I classify that? Was it a hard sell? I mean, it was not a given. Uh, I think the outcome was definitely not uh, determined at the beginning. Um, because a programming language is, is a significant piece of technology in the stack of a company. Like, I, I like to think of the stack of a company as a pyramid um and the closer something is to the top the fewer types of that item you have so you might have 500 libraries at the bottom and then you have maybe a couple of web frameworks and then you have a few programming languages and maybe you have one container orchestrator right now you don't run many of those and the closer you are to the top the more difficult it is to move away from something, and the more investment it requires to actually support that technology um, in a way that is productive. And programming languages in particular have a lot of ramifications. Um, So let's start from the basics, right? So you want to put a service into production, at layer, for example. And no matter what the service is written into, uh, that service needs to be deployed in Kubernetes, so it it needs to be able to run in a container, So, you need to have a way to package it and ship it. It needs to expose a certain amount of telemetry data, like certain types of Prometheus metrics, You need to expose uh, open telemetry traces, logs in a certain format, um, and so on and so forth. All of this is work that, for example, for a programming language, you generally do once, but you need to put the initial investment to actually do it um so like there's a there's a cost that you need to pay at least once usually you need to do a few iterations to actually get it right but let's say at least once now you have a piece of tech in the cluster and maybe you have two three five six 15 services that's some time like that basically means that going forward you need some level of rust knowledge because you have a stock that is generating revenue hopefully um that is getting trust. so even if the super-excited engineer, a.k.a. myself, Morris, leaves the company, IP case, goes under a bus, an IP case, somebody got to maintain that stack. Like, that, that is necessary. Um, so when you say yes, you're not saying yes to something that ends in two months when the project is finished. You're saying yes to the lifetime, like the total maintenance cost of that project. And what does that mean, like if you unpack it? It means that you will have to hire for Rust Talent. So like, of course, it's like, OK, how, much Rust in, how many Rust engineers are there that we can hire? Can we train them? Do we need to train the engineers we have? So like if some engineers want to move team or they need to start supporting these new systems, they need to upskill themselves to learn the language, which first of all means, that, is there excitement? And that was part of like um, the, the question. is like, does the engineering organization, is it interested in supporting Rust? the second is, do we want to put in the time and money to give them an opportunity to learn the language and then become proficient into it? So that's why I say that it was not necessarily the hardest sell uh, because, of course, a lot of work had been done before and people got excited into the community in different ways. But regardless, uh, the consequences of it made it a fairly heavy choice to make. Like, it's not something you do lightly and OK, now we're going to stop doing rest. And you see that because companies, generally speaking, even if they go polyglot, they don't support like tens of languages. I think, I don't remember which company was it, but the terminology I like is that's like the paved way. Like you can do whatever you want, but we're going to support one, two, three, four golden stocks. uh, And that's where we're going to make sure that everything runs smoothly. You go outside of the paved way uh, that you are on your own. Uh, but for a smaller company, like to layers, so in like the 80, 90 engineers, so big, but not huge. Like the cost of supporting five, six different stacks is just too high. You do a lot of things, you do not well. So adding another like core piece of programming language is a significant endeavor.
0: I guess to go back to then the process of what you guys were actually building, what were some of those main challenges and horror stories that kind of came out of that process?
1: I mean, I'm glad to say we don't have too many horror stories. Uh, not as in we didn't find some terrible bugs in some open source libraries, is that we didn't find them in production, which, of course, uh, makes a very different fun experience uh, when you find that testing. Um, so how did that go? Well, the project started. Well, was one engineer in it, so just myself. Um, Then that became five, roughly, when the project was at full speed. And it was roughly 50-50. Like, um, 50% of the engineers with no experience whatsoever using Rust, uh, 50% of the engineers with some experience either commercial or open source, um, depending where they're coming from. And, of course, like, the first... Like, the first question was, are we going to be able to get the um, engineers who have not used Rust before uh, to actually be proficient and, like, contribute to the project? And that was a resounding success. Uh, Like, after a month, roughly, depending on the level of seniority, uh, people were contributing, uh, even in particularly hairy parts of the code base, without too much indulging. But yes, there was the occasional um, the compiler is laughing me in the face with lifetimes, because I'm doing some asynchronous closures. or kind, of closures. And then you go there and say, OK, let me help you here. But generally speaking, um, mastering the subset of the language that was necessary to write back-end services, that was fairly easy. That, that, was, that was fine. That was a normal learning curve for a programming language. The stuff that was a little bit more tricky, I would say, uh, was figuring out the toolset. Um, if you think about it, like asynchronous Rust is fairly young. Like, I think was stabilized, I think, November 2019, if I get the month right, more or less. So that's a year and two months from today. And after it was stabilized, then it took a few months for everybody to migrate. Then people started to explore the space, library changing, um, different defaults. So there's a lot. uh, But there's a lot of, like, pockets of functionality. So there's a library that does very well this bit. There's a library that does very well, this other bit. Okay, how do we assemble that into basically our own flavor of Rails or Django, so to say, which we can use to have like a toolkit which makes it fast to churn out um, backend services? Because, of course, well, you're not writing a monolith in our case, you're writing a microservice architecture. I think at the end, we have something like 12, 13 services, and they're a mixture of REST APIs, JPC APIs, RabbitMQ message consumers. Like, how do we make sure that we're building blocks, that all this thing makes sense? So that was, I think, that was useful to have some more experience for us programmers. Um, so kind of to steer people away from things that would have been huge time sinks. So, for example, certain choices we made at the beginning, like, okay, our executor is Tokyo. And we're not going to go through the hard of making things executor agnostic because we don't need it. And we're going to steer away from any library that is not using Tokyo or is not executor agnostic. Yes, we could make it work. Uh, no, it's too complicated. I don't want to waste engineer time on this. I don't like the fact that I had to make that compromise, but like that simplified things, uh, made it possible to go forward. Or we're going to standardize on Arctic's web because it's stable. Maybe it's not the nicest, uh, but we can go with it. And so basically, what we did, we built an ecosystem of internal libraries. Uh, that made it very, very, very easy to stitch together a service. So that you would generally just write the business logic and the tasks and leave most of the infrastructure to these internal libraries. And that worked fairly well um, for us. So it allowed us, for example, to do migrations very fast when the ecosystem is changing. It allowed us uh, to make sure best practices as we found them were consistently applied. Because of course, like the other problem was that's a little bit where um, zero to production comes in the picture. There's no real guide or tutorials at the intermediate level to do backend in Rust. So you have the Rust book, say, so, okay, this is Rust, this is programming language, great. Patchy async guides of different types. So the usual like intro to Rocket or intro to Optics Web, I'm going to teach you a few things. And that's pretty much the extent of it. Like, that, that's not enough. Like, how do I onboard an engineer that needs to work on these systems? What do I give them to read? And the third one, I guess, the biggest was, um, you cannot get, you cannot consider the um, open source libraries you use as, like, a commodity. Like, this is something that in more mature ecosystems you can do, right? So you say, well, I'm using Django. I'll never contribute back to Django. Because the likelihood that I'm gonna find that critical bug, like so many people have used it before me, that much larger scale deployments. How unlucky do I have to be? Like to be the one that finds like the critical vulnerability. Like you cannot do that for Rust. Like the ecosystem is much more immature, and like you need to factor in that a certain amount of time is gonna be contributing back mostly patches uh, upstream. You don't know where yet uh you don't know which libraries are going to need them but you're sure you're going to find some and i think in four months uh we contributed probably four or five uh across a bunch of projects i mean we find uh, a core dump in tracing when you could like you mix two different tracing subscribers we found um pretty nasty issue in lapan if you were redeclaring an existing queue with evident queue we found issue in the open telemetry instrumentation like we did find stuff and then we put engineers there, okay, let's try the patch and contribute it upstream. And if you do not have the time to do that, then probably you want to stick to more mature ecosystem. So like that needs to be factored in.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting point that I hadn't thought of. I guess the last kind of few questions I still had about your work at TrueLayer was, if you kind of had to estimate what percentage of like total code is Rust and all other Programming languages, like what do you think that estimate would kind of be right now? Oh,
1: it's a tough one. What would it be? I think REST might be at this point in time 20%, maybe Just one product out of three.
0: Do you see that 20% gaining ground as time goes on, or do you think it'll stay roughly about 20%? What do you think?
1: It's very difficult to say um, for a variety of reasons. Like for our older products um where we made like we have considerable amount of real code state um so to say uh in c sharp and there's no real reason uh to actually go and rewrite things uh they wouldn't bias um, anything that is worth the effort that's roughly gonna stay there um is the Rust share gonna increase depends does the new product go well, do well, uh, so that we invest more into it and expand geographically. And so that grows, that definitely is going to increase. If the layer is going to do well and build new products and Rust still is um, a fairly light technology within engineering, then there's a chance that those are going to be Rust. So it, it very much depends on a lot of things, which are not necessarily like engineering driven as more like, like the business sides and how things are going to go.
0: Okay. That makes sense. Let's move on then to talking about Zero to Production. I have read a decent chunk of it. Uh, I haven't gotten through everything, but I think I read, yeah, um, most of the early chapters. I read the Deployment one. I think that was the first one I read. Just want to say, like, that one I think is super important because I feel like oftentimes, yeah, like, Deployment is just not talked about enough, and so that one was just, like, a real diamond in the rough of a post was uh, super helpful. But yeah, you talked a little bit about kind of the initial motivation for Zero to Production. I think I read a tweet. I wasn't sure if you said you finished it, but what's, how's the progress on that going?
1: That's the same when like your relatives ask you, do you have a girlfriend at Christmas? Uh, no, I haven't finished it yet. Yeah. Um, I think I'm slightly, uh, what, am, what am I? 66% or less of the book it turned out to be a little bit longer than expected. So to say.
0: <laughs> how much of the content in Zero to Production is stuff that you had to kind of inject from your own learning and how much was informed by your daily work at, at True Layer?
1: That's a very good question. I think definitely like the shape of the book and like what chapters are in there and the order in which they're tackled was very much informed my, my work at TrueLayer. Layer and specifically like the work of onboarding new engineers onto the team that were not coming from Rust. Um, they were either coming generally from C-sharp or JavaScript. It's like, okay, well, which I mean, prototypically are the two big backgrounds, right? Um, statically, static language, object-oriented, uh, dynamic language with some types if you're using TypeScript, functional patterns because mostly we're React programmers. So like, okay, if these people are trying to learn the language to do this thing, what do they stumble on? Um, and that was a little bit like the, the reader persona in my mind. It's like, OK, what do they need to see? And that's how like the book was paced. At that point, you always try to do better than you do the first time, right? So like when I was doing it through layer, I was a little bit um, discovered as you go. Um, when I was redoing it into the production, certain things are actually better maybe than what we did. The first time, because I had more time to go over them, or just I spend the time to actually build a library for the book that made certain things simpler uh, that maybe we didn't have internally. That's like how stuff like Cargo Chef in that deployment pro- uh, chapter was built. That was built because I was writing the book and I was like, I can't teach the people to do like seven hundred lines of making mock files, and then they need to delete uh, to get caching. I'm like this looks horrible. Like is there a better way? And I'm like I think that. I- I sunk a weekend into it. I was like, okay, I think I can do it. Um, so I think the, the daily experience factors in a lot, but it's not necessarily like the code you would find if tomorrow you were to work into our code basis.
0: I think you even mentioned this in the book, but obviously one of the biggest pain points with the book like this is perhaps how quickly it'll get outdated. So like, is that something that you're going to, are there other steps to kind of combat that? Or how much are you kind of thinking about that with this book? Oh, uh,
1: no, that's definitely an element. Um, if I think that the book has been ongoing for six months, and I already had like, to update it at least three times because like major libraries releasing breaking changes. Um, so yeah, that's definitely a concern. So there's that, two sides uh, to the problem to me. So in one side is I spend a lot of effort in trying to make sure the book teaches you more than just the APIs of the libraries uh, that you're using. So like focusing on the concepts. And then, of course, tying that in with the practice. like Go get that library that helps you achieve that piece of work. Um, So for example, okay, let's talk about observability. And we'll talk about log. And we'll talk about tracing. And then I'll teach you enough of tracing to achieve what we need to achieve. But it's not the tracing documentation. The tracing documentation is there, and you refer to that. which of course means that if tomorrow, uh, I hope that doesn't happen in the short future, it means a lot of additional work. Now let's suppose the tactics Web is not um, anymore one of the major like um, web framework. That means that two chapters needs to be seriously edited uh, because you need to like bring in another web framework, change a bunch of stuff. But that does not invalidate uh, the book as is. So I'm concerned about it as you uh, know. I know that even when it's finished, there's a certain amount of maintenance work that I need to factor in, uh, which might be more or less, depending on how uh, my investments in current libraries, at, like mirror the future. Uh, but apart from that, I'm fairly confident it's not gonna be useless, let's say in two years,
0: maybe in five. I will say, I think you, I've done a really good job kind of surveying a lot of those really important topics and that you're right, you know, maybe, even if some of the details for how you perform observability and Rust become outdated, you know, at the end of the day, that's still a massively important topic. Same with deployment and and all that other good stuff. So I think I think that just goes to show I think you picked a really good uh, bunch of topics there for for the book. I do recall. I think from from some of the other blog posts that I've read on on your blog, you contributed to Array and a lot of the linear algebra libraries in Rust. Do you still do any of that machine learning and math stuff, or is it kind of on the back burner right now?
1: Oh, it's definitely on the back burner. Um, like there was a period of time where I was doing backend as a job and ML as open source, uh, but the the cost of the mental switch was too high. Like if you're talking um, microservices, caching patterns day in day out, uh, and then you go in the evening, okay, let me remember how to implement Schlesky decomposition. Uh, like it's a big jump, um, and I just wasn't able to do it. Like it took me too much time to get back into it to actually enjoy it in the end. Like doing uh, the open source work. So what I did three months, four months afterwards was okay. Let's move the libraries to people that can maintain them. Um, So for example, Linfa, which is the framework for classical machine learning. I said, okay, folks in the Rust Machine Learning Working Group, uh, I trust you. I'm sure you're going to do good stewardship. Do you want to take it on? And they're like, yeah, absolutely. Uh, We think it's an important project. If you want to donate it, uh, we're happy to maintain it. Great. And for the others like NDRA, NDRA stats, uh, there's already a community around them. So I just took a step back.
0: Let me then ask, your professional opinion then as an XML engineer, like what do you think is the state of machine learning in Rust? Do you think there's potential there? There's kind of like even any chance or any consideration that someone would be like, hey, let's use Rust instead of Python for machine learning?
1: Yeah, Rust instead of Python, I don't see that happening pretty much ever, just uh, <laughs> my personal opinion. I don't see a future and where that is the reality. I, I think a slightly more interesting question is, do we see a future in which, instead of doing Python C, people do Python Rust? Absolutely. Um, and I think the ecosystem is not as mature yet. So if you need to build um, algorithms in Rust, um, there's a chance you might have to do some like fundamental building block work that you wouldn't do uh, if you were doing that in Python or in C++. Um, because some of the libraries are not as polished. Um, some of the language features are maybe not necessarily there. Um, specialization, constant generics, definitely some of those. Uh, but you can get off the ground. Like I know for the fact that there are companies using Rust uh, quite extensively to do machine learning. And they generally belong um, to specific subsets. But um, like for example, they're doing ML on memory-constrained devices where you say, OK, I'm not going to deploy Python there. Um, so I need something a little bit lower level. And I think it's easier to do it in Rust, even considering like the ecosystem level of maturity compared to do that in C++ instead of so making these choices. And these are like companies interacted with it when I was maintaining NDA stats, for example. I'm like, well, actually, we're using that in production. It's like, wow. OK, what are you are doing is? Um, so I, I think that's going to happen. and. Um, it depends in the end about, it's about industry, industry funding, Uh, like it it all boils down to corporate backing to an extent, especially if we look, um, at stuff like neural networks, uh, deep learning, you cannot keep the pace of something like TensorFlow or something like PyTorch, if you're relying on five or six contributors to that in their spare time. So at a certain point, there needs to be somebody who says, uh, I want to bet on this technology, and I'm going to fund some people to work on it. And then maybe you're going to see that becoming more mainstream. Uh, But at this point, I think it's still fairly niche. That's a fair assessment.
0: I think we'll wrap up with uh, one last question here, which is, do you you enjoy back-end work more than the machine learning work you used to do? Oh, that's a very loaded question.
1: Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, nobody pointed again at me. Say, go do backend. Um, so I had a choice at a certain point uh, within the same company, so within Trulia, to say, okay, well, actually, let me stay here playing with my models. Uh, or, yeah, I want to do the backend stuff. The reason I switched to backend is a bit multifaceted. Um, so some of those are technical, and it's like the enjoyment of the day-to-day. Some are more um, ethical, professional kind of reasons. On the technical side, um, I think DML workflow and in general processes and the way to approach ML problems is 10 years behind uh, the way people work on backend or general like um, software engineering systems. Uh, the ML ops stack which is coming out, ML operations, which has understanding how to build these models. And there's a lot more cowboyish behavior in like putting stuff uh with a lot of it's only it's bearing a lot of wave um and you're putting it like in the wild, and using it to do things um that sometimes are dangerous about like effects on people without necessarily understanding if you have the right level operational maturity to guarantee that it's gonna be okay. If that makes sense. Um so like there's a lot of like there's a um how's it called? That's that. SKCD um comic which i often often copy paste to people like the guy was like steering the the big pile uh, just hoping that he's going to get different results and a lot of the work that i was doing in neural networks felt a little bit like that oh yeah we, we steered as like big matrices pi and we are going to get something different like it, it was there was a lot of craft, but not in the good sense. Um, I mean, a lot of the day-to-day, which I didn't necessarily enjoy. Um, so that is probably like the more, um, how do you say, pleasure aspect of the work. I think on back end, I feel I have much more control over like what I put in, what I'm going to put out. It feels way more linear um, than what it used to be when I was doing that work. Uh, on the opposite side, it was just a matter of perspective. Like When I went back. Um on the job market before joining TrueLayer. Um, and I was like, okay, I'm looking for a machine learning engineering position. And what I realized was: well, if you don't want to work for companies doing advertising, um, you don't want to do quant or like more financy stuff. Um, and there were a few others, marketing, which like, probably you can say it's a subset of advertising, then actually there's not many vertical. When they actually legitimately need a machine learning engineer. Like a lot of people need a data scientist or like people who can crunch numbers for like with a more businessy flavor, so to say. Uh, But the actual ML artwork, like we're going to build models to do things, there's not many verticals that need that. And I was like, I'm not interested in that. Like I don't want to do advertising. That's not what I'm looking for. Um, Well, when I look at it, and I look at it, okay, let me see what people are looking for developers. Well, everything. Like, something is in the world uh, that we can repeat that, and now, Sam, like, I have no, like, my skill set does not restrict the vertical where I can go to work. And to me, that feels like an improvement compared to where I was when I was doing ML.
0: Cool. <laughs> Makes sense. So, uh, but yeah, I'm glad to see that it seems like you're happy with where you're currently at and that's that's great to see and that involves working in Rust so that's super cool yeah it's a nice combo <laughs> yeah cool all right uh thanks so much Luca I think uh that's about it we'll go ahead and wrap this this conversation up unless I don't know you had any other I suppose last minute things you like wanted to bring up
1: any last declaration to put on record no I'm fine <laughs> I think I've said everything you <laughs> wanted to say
0: so to, to the listeners, uh, where can they, uh, f- you know, what, what, um, social media stuff do you want to to plug here while you have the mic? Uh, you can find me on Twitter pretty much. It's
1: disco at Luca. And from there you can find everything else you want to find.
0: Cool. All right. So yeah, thanks so much again, Luca for, for taking the time. This is a lot of fun and, uh, thanks for, uh, Again, initially for the idea and for uh, a really fun recording session on this uh, inaugural podcast. So thanks, everyone. And we'll uh, see you all in the next one. Bye-bye.